Good evening, everyone. Tonight's class is titled, You Are What You Eat. It's great to be back. And just to make a little recap, we're going to be starting Chapter 8 tonight in the Red Tanya. That's on page 33. Perikhes, Chapter 8. Until now, we've discussed the two souls. We've discussed how every Jew has a godly soul, an animalistic soul. We said how each one of these souls is a complete life of its own. It's a complete energy of its own. It has its own city. They're each their own king. There is a king called the godly soul and a king called the animalistic soul. We moved on to discuss how within negativity, within Klippa, there are two types. There is Klipas Noga, there is this energy which is up to us to use it for the good or for the bad. And there is a Shalosh Klipos Hatameos, which is completely impure and it is impossible to use it out for the good. Unfortunately, some things in this world are not for us to touch. There are items that. Chaya, please, there's, there's, there's more than enough room. There are some things in this world that no matter how and what we're going to do, they are not for us. Tonight, we're going to go ahead and talk about, we're going to focus on food. That's good for me. <laughs> it's a good topic, but we're going to talk about the difference between kosher and non-kosher food. And we're going to share how non-kosher food has this added negative energy. Oftentimes we'll say, well, someone could do a sin, and that sin will give energy, particularly in the case of eating non-kosher food. When someone eats non-kosher food, that food instantaneously joins their body, and then now is giving them energy to live. Kosher, non-kosher food, when you eat, you have the energy to live. So, when you take that energy from the non-kosher food and you use it for something holy, you come to shul. So now, you've taken that seemingly unkosher food, but you've come to shul with it. So now you've made a holy. Or so we think. But we're going to learn that when something is not kosher, when something is impure, no matter what we're going to do, we have no power over that energy. And that is because something that is not allowed is called, as you remember we discussed this in the previous chapter, it's called asur. Asur means it's forbidden. forbidden. But what does asur also mean? Bound. Bound. It's tied up. It's locked up. There's nothing we could do to release that energy. So no matter how we're going to try, if it's bound up, if it's tied up, we can't release it. Let's see that inside, and then we'll look at some details. Before we move ahead, I want to share one last point, and that is, chapter 8 is the last chapter that's going to talk about, so to say, the sins and the punishments that we get for it. 
And that is because we're going to be wrapping up this discussion of the cause and effects of things we do. And with that, soon we'll begin chapter 9 and be able to talk about the struggle of the two souls and how good could overpower evil. We'll be able to, once we know what is good and what is bad and the effect each have, we then could talk about how one could overpower the other. Let's look at inside chapter 8. Perikhes. There is an additional aspect in the matter of forbidden foods. Additional means because previously we had said that when something is forbidden, you can't release it. But now we're going to say that in forbidden foods is an additional aspect. The reason they are called the reason they are called isur chains. Remember, we said the story of Shimshon. Samson, he was tied up. And the, the wording used for tied up is asur. So this forbidden item is chained, is that even in the case of one who has unwitt unwittingly eaten a forbidden food, that means you ate something forbidden, and listen to the next words, intending it to give him strength to serve God. You went ahead and accidentally ate something non-kosher, intending to serve Hashem with this energy to come to Shul, to learn Torah, to go ahead and do a favor to another by the energy of it. And not only did you have in mind to go ahead and do something holy, he has moreover actually carried out his intention. You went ahead, you did it. You did something holy with the energy that you got from this unholy item, having both studied and prayed with the energy of that food. You took it and you used it out. Nevertheless, the vitality contained therein does not ascend and become closed in the words of the Torah prayer. You could try as much as you want, but it's a sword, it's tied up, and when you're going to go ahead and pray, we're not going to be able to elevate that energy. Any questions? Okay. Please. I kind of wonder, like, I don't know, I mean, it's, I mean, I know it's different, but I wonder if there's any possible relation, like, say you may do a header mitzvah, like, you can take something that is a mitzvah and beautify it or make it better, so I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, like, let's say someone doesn't have any kosher food, or they're not familiar yet enough with kosher laws, but they're trying to get there, so it's like, okay, it may not, okay, it's not trait, but maybe they eat some, like, I don't know, like, so, I don't know something that is not as kosher, but it just wasn't like, say it's not supervised, and it's like, but, but so, they eat that, and they're like, well, you know, I, I, they need energy, like, and then they want to go to school, and they want to do that, so are they sort of maybe transforming, I mean, I, yes, it's forbidden, but locked up, but is, it, is there some path that, that, that the Torah says that it's like, not that it's okay, but it's like, they're, they're like, it's like, they're reaching, like, they're, 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 they're still serving. It's a good question. Basically, if I could rephrase the question, the question is, if someone is far away from Judaism, we tell them, don't jump into it. So you're going to go ahead and you're going to do everything at once. It's unhealthy. Rather, we say, do it in stages. If you weren't observing Shabbos, so perhaps 
stop driving a car on Shabbos. If you were, but don't go ahead and stop and stop everything you were doing on Shabbos and kosher. Don't do it all at once. That's what we tell people. But on the other hand, seemingly you should. With that, am I kind of saying you're rephrasing your question? A little bit. So in that case, the Torah tells us that you want to do something that's going to last. It has to be a Dover Shel Kayama. We never want to go ahead and do something temporarily. Like the Torah says, if God forbid someone is about to die, better another person should go ahead and transgress Shabbos and allow that person to live and live many more times Shabbos than you going to be all holy and that person is never going to have another Shabbos. So the same thing here is better that we're going to go ahead and do it in stages. Something that's going to be a Dover Shel Kayama, an everlasting edifice, rather than go ahead and jump into it and not, and not be something that's going to last. It's also more true. No, there's a story of one of the rabbis who he had a chassid, a follower of his, who moved to Moscow. And he, rather than wearing the Hasidic garb, he wore what everyone else in Moscow was wearing. And he used to come to his Rebbe every so often, and every time he would come to his Rebbe, he would put on the Hasidic garb and enter the Rebbe. Finally, one time he had enough. He said, I'm done. I'm just going to enter the Rebbe with the, whatever I normally wear. I'm going to lie. And he comes in and the Rebbe says, Until now, I always thought you were a chassid that at times was in Moscow. Hmm. Now I see <laughs> you're in Moscow and at times you're a chassid. So it doesn't matter always the fact that we're always going to be wearing the same clothing. It matters deep down what we're trying to accomplish. So going back, so going back to your point a lot of it correct is where we're focused and what we're trying to where we're trying to get to because ultimately trying to increase our, our love for Hashem and we may not all get there in exactly the same correct. pace or, or we could say better we're, not, we're certainly not all going to get there on the same pace now, here we have a, a very big question. If, if I went ahead and I ate something that wasn't kosher and I used it out for God, so it must be godly. What do you mean it's not godly? It's godly. Of course it's godly. I went ahead and I used it for something good. What, what else is it? The energy inside of me helped me do something holy. How could you say it's not holy? Well, let's ask the question the other way around. When I go ahead and I drink water and we make a blessing, we drink the water. Is that water now holy? What do you think? What's your thoughts? Is the water holy? It's holy. It's, it's holy water. An artist that draws a picture, do we compliment the hand that drew it or we compliment the person that drew it? Compliment, do we compliment the artist's hand or the person? The person. Oh, the person. The person. The hand is a tool. Right, it's a tool. It doesn't really have much connection. How could we... How are we able to say that godliness 
comes into something that we use out. It's so, they're so separate. They're so, they're so far apart. How do we say that when we do something holy, godliness comes within us? It could only be because that's what Hashem wants. Hashem says that when you do something holy, I'm going to come inside of that holy act. Hashem and the physical Hashem and that's so far so how when we do something physical we go ahead and we put on tefillin how do we draw God only because Hashem says that's where I want to be so therefore when we go ahead and we do something unholy but we use its energy for holiness Hashem says over there I don't want to be remember our initial question was why when we've done something unholy We've eaten something not holy. But we use that energy for something... Again, we've eaten something not kosher. But then we went ahead and we came to Shul. So our question was, how could we say that the unkosher food is, is now it's not holy? That's because Hashem says, I don't want to be there. It's not, that's not energy that I want to be a part of. Mm. But, let's continue now back in the Tanya as is the case with permitted foods if there's permitted foods that I've eaten them for the wrong reason I've went ahead and I've I just have the biggest desire for food and the energy that I I have in mind God forbid to take this energy with this unholy food and to do something really bad so now I'm eating kosher but my plan with this kosher food is, God forbid, after I have this delicious meal, to do something unimaginable. Is God within that kosher food? Hello, Shlomo. You could easily bring him into there. Because he's infinite, yeah. Because he's infinite, correct. But the stress over here is, that something that is forbidden is called asur, it's tied up, there's no way to unlock it. Something permitted is called mutar, it's, un, it's, it's not locked up. So although if you're eating it for unholy reasons, Hashem says, I'm not coming, but it's very easy to bring him back down there. And that's what we're saying in the Tanya. With permitted foods, by reason of its being held captive in the power of the sitra achar of the three unclean klipot. What does sitra achra means the other side. Anything that's not holy. So, if you, you ate something permissible, but you, your intent was not holy, you still have the ability to release it. So again, if we're doing something permissible, that does not always mean it's good. In, in Yiddish, we have an expression. It's a very... It's a very beautiful expression. It says, Vas mentarnit tarminit. Anyone here talk Yiddish? Mm-hmm. A little. Mm-hmm. Vas mentarnit tarminit. What we can't do, we can't do. But vas menmeg darfminit. What we can, we don't have to do. Not every single thing that a child, not every single candy a child sees does he need to eat. And the same thing is, not everything the Torah says we're allowed to do, do we need to do. Which, by the way, this is a, a philosophy that drives the Hasidic movement. And that is that 
if we're doing something, there's a reason we're doing it. We, we're living what we're doing. And we're, it's not just because Hashem said that, that a lot of things are permissible, doesn't mean we're going to go and just indulge in the world. If you remember the previous chapter, we learned that God left place for someone to indulge in the world in a permissible manner. It's called a novel Bereshus it's, it's meaning you're an Orthodox Jew, but you're just not acting appropriately. Everything is permissible. You know, you know that person where there's, you can't catch him on anything, but he's, it's just not appropriate. So not everything that's permissible do we need to do. But back, so back in the Tanya, we're going to add here that oftentimes people ask, they say, who are the rabbis? Where the, the rabbis, who, who are the rabbis? Who gave the rabbis permission? An example over here would be, we talk about meat and milk. According to the Torah, are you, are you allowed to have meat of a cow together with milk, yes or no? No. no. According to the Torah, are you allowed to have chicken and milk together? No. no. Yes. Yes. The Torah says that a chicken is a fowl. It's not an animal. The Torah, the quote of the Torah, three times in the Torah it says, Lo sevashel gedi Don't cook a goat with the milk of its mother, a goat. It's not talking about a chicken. But the rabbis came ahead and they said that there's a big similarity between the look of chicken and meat. And if we're not going to put down the standard and say chicken is, is going to have the same status as meat, it's going to be confusion and we're going to lose this whole law. And they put this in action in place that yes, you are not allowed to have chicken with meat. The chicken right. with milk. That's the concept of building a fence around the Torah. Fantastic. Siyag yeah. Terra, fence around the Torah. That's one example. And there's numerous examples where we, we're not even aware that really these things are allowed according to Torah, but the rabbis came and said it's something not permissible. Well, but I understand hard cheese yeah. is considered to be like meat. And you shouldn't have it with milk. Hard, dairy. hard, hard cheese you could have with dairy. I, I, hard cheese, just to quickly clarify, I don't want to go off topic, but hard cheese is always considered a milk product. Okay. The question is, if between hard cheese and meat, you have to wait six hours. That's the question. Uh, it's like but it's, meat and then you have to wait after. Right, it's like meat in a specific aspect that you may need to wait six hours. But that's like normal milk inflation. So to m milk, you only have to wait one hour. Oh, that's right. So, now comes the question. When we say here, that something is asur, it's forbidden, and it is tied up and it's locked up, you cannot take the energy out? Is that only talking about uh, a, a law that the Torah told us, or even a law that the rabbis taught us? And we're going to learn that we need to be more particular, more careful about something that the rabbis taught us than something that the Torah taught us. And the Torah itself says this.
Rabbinic law always has to be more stringent than Torah law, does it not? Correct. The Torah itself, the Torah itself says that you need to listen to the rabbis. And let's look at quote number one. This is a quote from the Gemara. This is a quote from the Gemara in Erevin. Quote number one. It says, My son, Bini, be more careful in the observance of the words of the scribes. The scribes are the rabbis. They're called Sofrim because they write things down. Be more careful in the observance of the words of the scribes than in the words of the Torah. For in the laws of the Torah, there are positive and negative precepts. But as to the laws of the scribes, whoever transgresses any of the enactments of the scribes incurs the penalty of death. A man there at the hands of heaven? I'm not sure. Fair question. Fair question. But the Torah has positive commandments, negative commandments. If you transgress a positive commandment, you have a lighter punishment. A negative commandment, there are different types of punishments. But when it comes to not listening to the rabbis, the Torah is very strict. In Deuteronomy, the Torah says, very serious. It's the punishment of death. So we have to recognize that when we say something is tied up, it's even a reference to a rabbinic inaction. Let's see that inside. Sorry, go ahead. Well, because the rabbinic inaction is tied to where it says in the Torah, you have to li listen to the wise men of your generation. Fantastic. The, it's almost a Torah. Exactly. Thank you, Gershon. Gershon's pointing out that something the rabbis instituted is not a rabbinic inaction. Something the rabbis instituted, the Torah said, is Torah law. The Torah tells us that we must listen to the rabbis. So if the rabbi says something, it's not the rabbi saying it. The Torah told us we need to listen to them. Right. So it's in the Torah. It's in the Torah. So there's no difference. There's no difference. But we're saying here it's even stricter. Let's see that inside. This is so... This idea that something that is forbidden, it's locked up, even using it for holiness won't help. Even when the prohibition is a rabbinic enactment, for the words of the scribes are even more stringent than the words of the Torah, and so forth. I'll give you another example. There's milk. Milk has to be kosher. What type of milk is kosher? Chal of Yisrael, kosher milk. But first, the first detail is it has to come from a kosher animal. There's also milk. Milk could come from camels. There's, there's other types of milk. For milk to be kosher, A, it has to be kosher milk. It has to come from a kosher animal. Now, we're worried that maybe someone's going to go ahead and in a bottle put some non-kosher milk. So how are we going to ascertain that the, kosher, that the milk we buy will always be only kosher milk. So the rabbis came and said that kosher milk needs to be supervised. Right. Whenever a milk is cow, whenever a cow is milked, there has to be a Jewish person literally watching the milking process. That's why kosher milk will cost more. It's because you have to pay. There's a man there that he's doing nothing aside from watching the milking process. 
A man, a young man, once comes to Rabshneir Zalman of Liadi, about 300 years ago. His father-in-law actually comes on, on his behalf. The father-in-law says, he says, my son-in-law is very pained because lately his mind has been in other places. He can't focus on learning. He's having questions about God. This has never happened to him before. Where is it coming from? And Rabbi Shneir Zalman responded, he said, it is coming because he drank milk that was not, it was kosher milk, but it wasn't washed by a Jewish person. Oh my. Because it wasn't, it wasn't Chalav Yisrael, he's having these thoughts. So here again we see that when the rabbis say something, it's not that we should listen to them. It's part of the Torah itself. So back to our initial point, that if something is forbidden, it's forbidden. And we can't really do too much there. Therefore, back in the Tanya, now we're going to say that because something forbidden has no good in it, I can't release the energy. So that desire, that impulse for someone to sin is called a non-Jewish impulse. There's no place for, for a Jewish person to be doing something that the Torah says you can't. And if he is, that means within him, living within him is a non is a, is a, at this at this moment is a non-Jewish impulse. Let's see this inside. Therefore, also the evil impulse, the Yetzer Hara, and the force that strains after forbidden things is a demon of non-Jewish demons. The demon, this energy to go and do something forbidden, doesn't exist in the Jewish vocabulary. To go ahead momentarily, we're going to say to go ahead and do something permissible, but in an inappropriate way, that's called a Jewish demon. Back to our example, to go ahead and eat kosher food, but for a bad reason, that's a, that's a Jewish demon. But to go ahead and do something forbidden, that's called a non-Jewish demon. Is a bad reason uh, when you have, say, a big feast with meat? And then you don't discuss any Torah or something like that? that that's not, say, or you don't say blessings? In Pirkei Avot, we talk about that. But that's not going to be called a bad reason here. Huh. If you're having a feast, as long as a feast is a, a, a gathering of appropriate people, and there's, there's pro good energy there, so then that's not going to be called something evil. Well, the, what, would be, what would be a bad intention? A bad okay. intention? I eat kosher food, I'd say all the blessings, and I want to make sure I have plenty of energy so I can go out and steal fruit from my neighbors or child. Right, right. Therefore, also the evil impulse, the Yetzirah and the force of strains after forbidden things is a demon of non-Jewish demons, which is the evil impulse of the nations whose souls are derived from the three unclean klipot. If someone is coming to do something impure, that means inside of them is a, is a foreign energy. On the other hand, the evil impulse and the craving force after, for, after permissible things to satisfy an appetite is a demon of the Jewish demons. Why? For it can be reverted to holiness as is explained above. We could go ahead and elevate 
the energy of this food that was eat, of this kosher food eat, eaten for a bad reason, and therefore it's called a Jewish demon. So there's non-Jewish demons and a Jewish demon. How does the non-Jewish demon come into the Jew? Where does that come? Where does that come from? When you sneeze. Yeah. <laughs> no, but some something had to bring it into you. We're taught uh, that at night when we sleep, we without conscious purpose, lose 59% of us. So there's one sixtieth left inside of us when we wake up. And that area has to be filled. So you say the modet to fill that immediately. Very good. So when we sleep, the majority of our soul leaves. And in the place, unfortunately, negative energy could come. But we're told that when we wash our hands yeah. three times cons in, in a special formation we remove all that impurity so how did it come to us? how did this non-Jewish demon come? and that's going to be the continuation let's go ahead and continue on says the Tanya further and here it's a very strong point and that is that from every stain a trace remains. Every stain, there's a little trace that's remaining. And enough traces will leave a permanent stain. Basically, although we have the ability to elevate something permissible for an inappropriate, for an inappropriate reason, although we could elevate that, but there's going to be a stain. And enough stains will bring along this non-Jewish demon. Let's see that inside. Never the, Sorry, so let me just rephrase the question and answer and then we'll see it inside. Where does a non-Jewish demon come into us from? And the answer is, if we've done, unfortunately, numerous items that are permissible, but for inappropriate reasons, they, each one, even after we repented, will leave a stain, and collectively, it's a, it's a bigger stain. It's, a, it's some sort of a permanent stain. And that brings in the demon of the non-Jewish the non demon. Any questions? So what makes it inappropriate? If we went ahead, like David gave the example before, if we went ahead and we ate in order to steal, so we were eating something permissible, but we did it for an inappropriate reason. Nevertheless, even though we could go ahead and elevate anything that was permissible before it has reverted to holiness, it is sitra, achara, and klipa. Until we go ahead and repent, that energy from this permissible item is from the other side. It's unholy, because we've eaten it for an unholy reason. And even afterwards, after we repent, a trace of it, in Hebrew it's called a rishimul, remains attached to the body. Since from each item of food and drink are immediately formed blood and flesh of his, blood and flesh, of his flesh. Immediately upon eating, that food becomes one with us. Your food is one with you. And that's, what the, that's the name of the class, you are what you eat. When you eat, 
you've united with that food. It's one. It stays. It's giving you energy. And therefore, when you ate it, at the moment you ate it with a negative energy, it's had a negative effect on you. A small one, but it's had a neg negative effect. And a trace of that negative effect will remain. That is why the body must undergo the purgatory of the grave. We're now going to discuss different punishments that the soul has to go through. And as I mentioned in previous classes, Chasidos does not talk about sins. It does not talk about punishments. The, the Hasidic movement is one that shows you the beauty of Torah, shows you the excitement, shows you the love. And the reason over here in chapter 8 we're, we're going to talk about sins and punishments is for one reason and one reason only. The only way to truly know the gravity and how serious something is is at times from knowing the sin and punishment. The punishment oftentimes will show us how serious it is. And therefore we're going to talk about a few sins and their punishments. So, if someone went ahead and ate something kosher but for a bad reason... And he, and he repented, nonetheless, his soul is going to have to, after 120 years, when his soul goes on high, his body will need purgatory of the grave. Basically, what it means is that angels, are, angels come and they hit the grave. They shake the grave. Imagine you have a talus, and the talus got, has crumbs on it. So what you do is you shake it. You shake off the crumbs. And that's what's happening here. The angels come, they shake the body. That's called purgatory of the grave. And they're removing those traces of, of negativity that are remaining on you. That is why the body must undergo the purgatory of the grave in order to clean it and purify it of its uncleanliness which it had received from the enjoyment of mundane things and pleasures which are derived from the uncleanliness of the Klipas Noga and of the Jewish demons. So again, this is a permissible item, but it's been eaten for an inappropriate reason. It leaves a trace, and there is the necessity after 120 for purgatory of the grave. Before we take questions, let's look for a moment in footnote number 2 and number 3. Footnote number 2 is of extreme importance, and it's a reminder that's, that punishment in the Torah is never to go ahead and hurt someone. When Hashem punishes, He purifies. When Hashem punishes, He's doing the best thing for a, for a person. The example is given. The son, if, if you would say, for example, the heat of the sun, you have the heat of the sun, and then you have you have the heat as you get closer to the sun, and then you have the heat of the sun on, on planet Earth. It's the same sun, the same ray, but here on Earth, it's much weaker than the way it is up on high. So if we're talking about, if we say that punishment is purification, so we say that if someone is punished on this world, it's like that ray of the sun. It's much, much weaker. Weaker. It's much, much easier than being punished on high. 
So if we would call Gehenim, for example, if we would say that, excuse my terminology, if we would say that hell is the ball of the sun, someone that goes through punishments in this world is actually going to be getting uh, a, a, a diluted and much weaker punishment to purify that act. Does that make sense? Is that clear? Any questions on that? Clear? Can you repeat that? Sure, sure. Just like the sun, you have the ball of the sun, and but that same ray, when it comes here, is much weaker. The same thing is, if someone gets punished in this world, he's going to get a much a, a diluted punishment, a much weaker punishment, than if he would get in the world to come. That is why we say people getting punished in this world are actually, getting, are actually having benefit. For example, they say, why do the righteous suffer in this world and the wicked prosper? And that is one of the main answers. Because the wicked, we don't want to punish them in this world. Hashem's going to take care of them after 120. The righteous, Hashem says, in this world, let's just take care of it. Let's finish off any, any things we may need to deal with. And then when you come to the world to come, enjoy straight away. But punishment is not to harm someone, is not to hurt someone. <coughs> and the proof is as follows. Let's look at footnote number two. All who have incurred the penalty of karis. Karis is when God says your soul is going to be, uh, you're going to have an early death. So let's say, for example, someone was punished to have an early death. And mistakenly, the Betin flogged him. So on being flogged, obtain remission from their punishment of karis. That means the punishment of death is removed by the flogging. Because, remember, we're not punishing you to hurt you. We're punishing you to refine you. So you've been refined through the 39 lashes. Very, very important point again. Punishment in Torah is not to hurt, it's to refine. And that is why, that if someone got a different, a mistaken punishment, at times we say, that's enough. You've You've learned your lesson, you've been purified. Point A. Point B, we're talking over here, we said that, that at times the soul has to go through purgatory of the grave. We're going to look at footnote number 3 and we're going to see that even that, there are methods to go around it and not, God forbid, to have to have this purgatory. Number 3, to avert kever, purgatory of the grave, what should one do? Recite words of Torah and to heal him for one-sixth of the day. Mm. If you recite words of Torah for one-sixth of the day, namely four hours. What about merit, purity of the soul, to remove kafa kela, the hollow of a sling? Momentarily we're going to learn of another punishment called, called the slingshot. How do we remove that? That would be through spending as much of the day in reciting Mishnah, Tanya, and Tehillim by heart. So there are ways to circumvent and remove these, these methods of purification on high. We could just take care of it still in this world. How do you define We're, we're going to learn about that in a moment. Okay, so now we've said that even if you had enjoyment in this world, but it was for an unholy reason, so you're going to need purgatory of the grave, Continuing the Tanya, only one who had derived no enjoyment from this world all his life 
as was the case with our saintly master Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, he is spared from this. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi was the author of the Mishnah. He compiled the Mishnah, which from the Mishnah later came the Gemara. Now we find regarding Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, we find an amazing, amazing contradiction. Let's jump ahead, looking at footnote number 5, and then we'll go backwards to footnote number 4. Footnote number 5 says the Talmud in Tractate Avodah Zarah 11a that on the table of Rabbi Yehuda the Prince, neither lettuce, nor radish, nor cucumber was ever absent, whether in the summer or in the winter. We're talking, we're going back now 2,000 years ago. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, he was a very rich man. He had every delicacy you could imagine. And let's now look at footnote number 4, which is again from the Talmud Kesubot 104a. Rabbi, Rabbi Huda Hanasi, the same person of discussion, at the time of his passing, raised his ten fingers towards heaven and said, Ribono Shalola, Master of the Universe, it is revealed and known to you that I have labored in the study of the Torah with my ten fingers and that I did not enjoy any worldly benefits even with my little finger. Yehi ratzon may it be thy will that there be peace in my resting place. A heavenly voice, a bat, call, echoed, announcing, He shall enter in peace, they shall rest on their beds. So here we have Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. He had every delicacy, and yet, at the same time, we're saying that he had no pleasure in this world. How does that work together? Usher, how do we reconcile this contradiction? I would imagine that he used all the energy that, he, that his body and spirit obtained from eating those foods, that he used every bit of that energy efficiently for, for, the, for the purpose of Torah. Easy. Asher Pende. Let's look inside of the words of Rebbe and we'll see that clearly. Rebbe said, I did not enjoy any worldly benefits. He didn't say I didn't have any worldly benefits. He said I didn't enjoy it. Basically he was saying, I didn't go ahead and just indulge in pleasure. When I ate something, when I ate those radishes, as we said from that we saw in the Talmud, when I ate the, that lettuce, which back then again was a delicacy, those cucumbers, I didn't eat them because I was, you know, excited and just wanted to indulge. I ate them because I was going to now go ahead and, re and continue compiling the Mishnah. I had, a, I had an agenda here. So let's go ahead and, and make a summary. And he with was also conscious that he was committing a sin by compiling the Mishnah. <laughs> yes, correct. How was he committing a sin by compiling the Mishnah? Because he was putting the oral law into writing. I, I have to correct the, the, the wording here. He was conscious that he was doing something that previously was a sin. For him, it was a mitzvah. Previously, the, 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 we know that there's the oral Torah and the written Torah. The oral Torah means it should be oral. So why do we find that the Talmud, which is an oral Torah, is written? Well, for many years, thousands of years, it was oral. It was oral. And then came a time where we broke that tradition and we wrote it down. It was during the Greek occupation? Roman. Well, it, it's... I keep hearing both that it was under the Greek occupation because uh, what's Alexander wanted to 
scared, but it was it was later. You could say it was under the Roman occupation by the geeks. Okay. Let's summarize here, and then we'll take questions. In summary, we've gone ahead and we said that there are. This and just I think to put in these words, you have the Jewish demons and the non-Jewish demons. Basically, if we're doing something that is not permitted, that whether we use it for the good or the bad, it's tied up. If we do something that is permitted, if we do it, if we're doing it for good, fantastic. If we're doing it for something bad, it's not so bad because we could elevate that energy. But a trace remains. And to get rid of that trace, we need this chibut hakever, purgatory of the grave. Are there any questions? Um, Please. We were talking about um, uh, uh, Rabbi Yehuda did not enjoy or did not partake of the joys. Yeah. That, isn't that kind of a, a, a conflict? I mean, we're supposed to have joy, and Hashem gives us things in this world for us to enjoy and to end go back to him with that joy. Sure. So and, but... Fantastic question. Should you go ahead and have pleasure in this world? The answer is yes. But make sure to have that pleasure for a positive reason. To go ahead and use that pleasure for something good. And that's what Rebbe was saying. He had all these pleasures. But he said, I didn't enjoy them. His, his stress was, I didn't just go ahead and say, I'm just going to go ahead and just have fun. This is an interesting... It's kind Sorry, of, did, I, did I answer the question? Okay. It's kind of a fine point too, but this is interesting. The idea that pleasure can be a source of energy. That you can enjoy it, but also sublimate it. Like, you enjoy the, you enjoy the experience, but it also gives you energy, and it gives you motivation, and it gives you power to can't carry on and do the things you have to do. Appreciation for Right. That's a great point. And especially in Judaism we know that yes, we encourage you to use out to use out the pleasures of this world in a holy manner. You know, we tr we're not we, we don't uh, live as celibates and by ourselves. No. We use out we, we use out what the world has to offer us, but we use it out for God. We thank you everyone and have a wonderful night. Thank you.